Welcome to the inaugural episode of Copycats, the podcast uncovering the science and art behind copywriting as seen through the lens of industry experts. I'm Drew LeBega. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome for this first show someone who's obsessed with usability, uh, plain language, and learning about people through research. She teaches workshops and personas, usability, user research, accessibility. She's a co-founder of the Center for Civic Design and has worked as a researcher in various organizations and is the author of three books, including A Web for Everyone, Designing Accessible User Experiences, Storytelling for User Experience, and Global UX Design and Research in a Connected World. Whitney Quisenbury, welcome to Copycats. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's fantastic to have you. So you've got a fair bit on your plate there from that intro. <laughs> so how in the world do you find time to do it all? Um, you know, I'm just the girl that can't say no. No, um, part, partly because I think everything I do is really just a different twist of looking at what, what I'm doing at the moment, right? So you could be saying, well, I'm working on a UX project, but I'm actually working on accessibility at the same time and storytelling is part of how we tell it. And um, these days, I think, whether you're thinking global in terms of actual international spanning the physical globe, or you're just thinking global in terms of including everybody in your audience. Uh, it's all kind of pieces of the same thing. Now, I imagine there's been a fair bit of demand on your time to talk about the uh, electoral space and what's happening uh, over there in the US. So what, what are people most interested in hearing about from you at the moment? Um, when we started the Center for Civic Design, uh, our idea was that we were going to fix the problem so voters could vote more easily. Uh, and what happened very quickly was we began to realize that all the things we wanted to fix were coming from government offices, were coming from election offices who are charged with running the election. Uh, and so we began to, par to partner with them and learn about their problems and their challenges and have kind of warmed our, warmed our way into being people who understand elections, but also understand uh, voters at the same time. And it's given us uh, the opportunity to work with both state and local election officials across the country. I'm, I'm really proud of the work we did this year. Uh, and maybe one sentence will sort of sum it up, which is that this year we've been, like most of the United States has been focused on a lot of vote by mail and getting through an election in a pandemic. And we got to work with uh, Virginia, Ohio, North Carolina, New York on statewide new voter vote by mail information. Uh, that was pretty exciting, but we also got to work with uh, clerks and counties in Michigan, in in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and some of the battleground states, helping them make sure that the information that voters got was accurate, helped them vote, um, invited them to vote even, right? Not just said, well, here's an election, we're showing up, have an election, but actually invited them to participate by making sure that they knew what had changed, what was new, where things were. Um, and I modestly or immodestly think that we made a difference. So tell me about the, the challenges that have been presented by the current pandemic that we're going through? Well, I think this probably affected all of us. We were lucky that we were already a remote team. So we had been using Zoom as our telephone and, and meeting room and coffee, you know, coffee space for years. Um, but it meant that uh, we were working on an accessibility project where we were planning to be going to independent living centers and uh, working with people uh, who, who are coming in for technology training and testing something, uh, a new project that we're working on called Morphic sort of a side project from, from an elections perspective, but it's all about uh, universal access to digital technology. And we had these great relationships set up and that was in early May. 
I mean, early March, sorry. And the next thing we knew, the curtain came down and all of a sudden the work still had to go on. And so we had to figure out how to do that remotely. Um, we've learned a lot about how you build a relationship uh, when you can't just drop by and see somebody um, in, a, in a world, in, in fields that are very physical. Uh, for instance, we used to do most of our research in elections and testing, not by scheduling people or having them come to a lab, but by going places they are, going down to government offices or shopping centers or libraries, and just, you know, wandering in and saying, hi, can I have, well, obviously arranging it in advance, you know, doing all the right proper things you have to do, but wandering in and, and saying, okay, you're here waiting for your turn in line. Can I, can I amuse you for 15 minutes or so of that time um, and get your feedback on this form? My, my favorite pitch at department motor vehicle offices was, you know, they, you'd see a room full of people, you knew they were sat there for an hour and you'd say, well, listen, um, I'm working with the secretary of state's office and we're trying to make sure that, you know, they're about to print some new forms. And we'd like to make sure before we print a couple million of them that people actually understand them and they'd go, you're going to ask me. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so there was this sense of using your time, being respectful of people's time, but using that time when they're thinking about interacting with government, to get feedback on their interactions with government. Right. Um, but I think the hardest part on us has been the team. Um, we usually get together once a month and we haven't been able to. We have six new team members this year, uh, actually five new team members this year. And uh, some of us have met in person, but some of us haven't. And I think I'm really looking forward uh, to being able to get together. I hadn't realized how much I would miss it. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's something I can definitely relate to. So in terms of you know here on copycats we're really interested in how uh, language can impact the experience of a user so within this context we're talking primarily about forms or are there other materials that, that you would look at um the form is sort of the tip of the iceberg right so let's think about voting by mail you get a package in the mail it might have a little booklet with information about uh, the election and what's on your ballot some states do that um, it's a really good practice uh, there might be some information on the envelope there might be a, a little insert there's information on the ballot and you've got to be able to take that you know unpack all the materials figure out what to do with them pack them back up and get them back to the election office in a way that gets the vote counted hmm. um, and so you know, one of the tendencies of people is to just put more words on the on the page. So every surface was just covered with words. We've been trying to help people slim that down, um, learn what what the points are that are really important. Um, we've learned a lot about pictures and how whether a picture just serves as a kind of bullet point to attract the eye or whether it's actually informational. I mean, and, and we try to make them both. Um, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, we had uh, a standard description. It was like, okay, mark your ballot put your ballot in the envelope, sign the back of the envelope, put it, put it, put it in the mail or in a Dropbox. But this year we had a number of little crises. I don't know if, if, the, if naked ballots made it to, to the UK, uh, but uh, in one state you had to put your ballot into an envelope and put that envelope into another envelope. And that if it, if it wasn't contained in the special envelope, it wouldn't be counted. So they were called naked ballots. And at first I was horrified but I realized that the humor of it actually was a great opportunity. Uh, we saw lots of people just on social media making their own memes and their own cartoons about it. And so actually it wasn't a big problem. And I think there was this combination of approaching it with a little humor and lightness. Also, everybody kind of talking about it. And one of the things that we did was work with the election office to make a, a, a cartoon type illustration that was that included all the steps, the two envelopes and the whole thing. They translated into multiple languages. They mailed it out to election offices. And um, 
it was great to see photographs of an election office that maybe wouldn't have taken the time to make that material, but there were the two posters hanging up um, so that everybody would remind you that there's not just three steps, but five steps to voting in that state. That's brilliant. I, I think that's a, a great example you give there of how you can take something that is, you know, potentially a really difficult challenge to, to get around and convert that for your advantage by being quite creative. So uh, what are you looking at in terms of measurements to say, actually, this went well? Ah, well, we have, th this is really easy. Um, I'm very much a qualitative researcher, but elections are inherently quantitative, just like, just like web, you know, web analytics gave us a really different view of how our products were doing in, in the digital world. Um, there's a whole set of analytics for elections. Uh, there's a project at MIT called the Election Performance Index that actually looks at these measures, which is wonderful. We kind of drill in a little bit to the things that we care about. So for, for vote by mail ballots, we might look at how many came late, right? Because one of the things we realized was that by the time you voted and you've got your envelope, all the other garbage, all the other paper is gone in the garbage. And the envelope itself didn't say when that ballot had to be back, didn't mm -hmm. give you the deadline, right? So can we reduce the number of ballots that come in late? Uh, can we reduce the number of ballots where the, they're missing a signature because um, by designing the envelope better, by putting reminders, one of the things we did with a couple of places was just put a little checklist. We have a standard checklist of the things in that state that could disqualify your ballot. And one of the election officials we work with sent us a scan of the envelope and you can see someone had actually ticked the boxes, right? So they were seeing it and they were using it to make sure they did it right. We also said, well, what if at the Dropbox, what if this, at that same checklist was at the Dropbox? So right as you pull the thing open to put your ballot in, you see that reminder of what, you know, is the ballot in the envelope? Is the envelope sealed? Is it signed on the back? Is it there on time? Right. And is this something that you're able to or have the time to, to test uh, as much as you wanted to? Well, you never have enough time to test as much as you want to, but we do test all the time. Um, I think every, uh, every time we think we're going to take a shortcut and not do a little testing, we're always um, unhappy that we did that. Uh, so even if it's just a few people, um, we also have a real commitment to making sure that we're testing with the people who are going to have the most trouble voting. So that means making sure that the people we test with reflect the community, um, whatever that community is. It means making an effort to get to people who, for whom English might not be their first language, who may have disabilities, um, who may not have high education. And that's one of the places where we really miss the in-person testing because we could go to a community center. Our replacement for that has actually been quite exciting, which is that we're now thinking, how do we build relationships like if we know we're going to be working in New York or Maryland, you know, how do we find the community groups in advance, build relationships with them, use them as our first testers, as our kind of expert testers, but then have be able to work with them to find people in their community um, who they can help set us up with for a Zoom call so we can do some testing with them. We've done some work where we've mailed things to people and had them call us back um, to talk about it. Um, so really thinking about how do you, do the hard work to reach the people who are going to be most likely um, stressed. And we know which communities those are because we have, we have, net, we have metrics. We know that um, inner cities are more likely to have um, higher rates of people whose envelopes, whose ballots don't get counted. And look, this is a tragedy. If you don't manage to buy a pair of shoes and you have five pairs of shoes, it's not a tragedy. It might be an annoyance. It might be, you know, sad that your outfit didn't match. But if someone has taken the time to attempt to vote and that vote doesn't get counted, that's a democracy challenge, tragedy.
And I guess what I'd like to touch upon is the going back to the idea of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you, you and you mentioned it earlier around this idea that you may have certain users who don't have English as their first language. Mm-hmm. You've got issues around uh, literacy. Mm-hmm. It's difficult because um, it's a bit of a stab in the dark as sometimes to to discern what exactly the main challenge is there but overall you're looking at uh, an issue around uh, readability uh, and and the way that people can comprehend what the information in front of them is. how do you meet that well i mean we're big devotees of, of plain language uh jenny reddish is our mentor and on our advisory board um and i think if you start with 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 explaining things in regular everyday terms if you have to introduce a term like absentee ballot that's great but, but make sure people understand it. Um, we, we work at reducing the word count, just fewer words. It's just fewer, fewer words to plow through. If you don't read well, let's, have, let's give you less to read and make sure the things we give you to read are the important things you need. Um, let's say it like a human would, you know, only mark one box in each column instead of you can only mark one, you know, some horrible, you know, sort of legal phrase. This is always a battle, right? Where how much will counsel let you simplify the language versus how much do they require that whatever the legal text is. But we're making progress and we're seeing progress in that. The other thing we learn is that when it's written in simple, straightforward language, it's easier to translate, right? If, if, there's, if there's more just simple active voice, you do this as opposed to one might possibly consider, you know, and all the complicated verb forms it makes it easier to translate either for the person who's translating in their head for an organization that's translating. And in the US, we actually have laws about translation. So if a, if a sufficient number of uh, people in a community uh, don't speak English or, or what they call linguistically isolated households, uh, meaning no one speaks English particularly well in that household and there's measures for that at the census, um, then the election office is required to provide um, voting materials in their language. So, and that's a, every five years, those determinations are reviewed by looking at the national census forms. Um, uh, but what's really exciting is we're seeing election offices go beyond that. Um, uh, obviously, Spanish in the United States is a big deal, but we have um, Asian communities of met, which speak many different languages. We have uh, a, a growing African community, and that means extremely many different languages because there is no single African language Right? just like there's no single Asian language. Um, and beginning to say, as we are bringing new citizens into the fold, as, we're, as they're going through that sort of acculturation process of becoming, you know, becoming Americans, whatever that means, um, offering materials in their language isn't just a convenience. It's actually saying, yes, we, we know that you're here and we want you to vote. We're inviting you to vote. Um, it helps people, it helps kids who are helping their parents, right? It helps all the, the intermediaries who help explain things better and teach the words and, and teach the methods. Um, uh, whether you're, the place you came from has a tradition of voting or not, it's not likely to be exactly the same. And so there's a lot of, how do you help people understand what it's like here to vote or here in your state to vote if you've moved? Um, and that takes sort of very specific concrete information because I learned how to vote by trailing to the polls with my parents, right? This is how many people learn to vote. But if that has shifted suddenly for someone, uh, maybe because you moved from 
uh, one state to another and it's a state that, that does more vote by mail or less vote by mail or requires ID, um, we have to figure out how to, how to cue people that something has changed that they need to pay attention to. And yeah. all of this is about language. Great. And I think um, you mentioned how things can shift. So in, in my mind, what I'm thinking is uh, language can shift and use of language can shift and certain words can become more uh, mm. accessible and more commonplace. So have you got any examples that come to mind of where that's been the case and over time where you've had to readjust um, the way you use language to, to uh, reflect that? I guess I would say that one of the things I think that is happening is that we're beginning to normalize a little bit on words. Um, you know, the words that get into legislation are kind of an artifact of a time and place. So maybe you call it, if you think that the reason you get to vote by mail is because you're not going to be physically present at your, the place where you live, maybe you call it absent voter or absentee or um, any of a number of things. But we're beginning to kind of center on just calling it voting by mail. And I think, I think that helps. It helps within a state, but it means that the national conversation works. We were doing some diary studies with voters this year. And one of the things that we realized that was very interesting was the way um, events that happened in a completely different jurisdiction were affecting people. So we had uh, some voters in Baltimore who were very worried about drop boxes and whether they were secure and whether the ballot would be counted because there was an issue that happened in California where people where, where some advocates were putting up their own drop boxes and it wasn't clear that they were actually delivering the ballots correctly. Uh, so a fairly isolated incident in a state 3,000 miles away can affect how well someone participates in, in, in elections mm. in a different city. That's really interesting to me because it makes me think of all of the data, all of the information that you guys are, are showered with and exposed to. You're trying to, in many cases, make that, make it so it informs what you do so you're able to optimize the experience that you're providing. So how, how do you manage to get around the fact that you've got so much information to deal with, market research data, reports, uh, insights, and how do, you, how do you make it applicable to what you do? Well, back in my, my UX days, um, I was a real fan of, I, I am still a real fan of personas um, because I think they help you kind of take that pile of stuff and boil it down to a story that you can tell. Um, in elections, we talk about it more as voter stories um, because uh, the mandate is so wide and so broad that, you, that the minute you start to say, we're gonna focus on certain segments of that audience, uh, you're in political trouble. Um, and for good reason, I mean, you're rightly so in political trouble. Um, but we try to uh, look at sort of what the journey is. So we've been thinking a lot about journeys as opposed to journeys, not the journey, but the many journeys people take and where they intersect and how they're different. And then for the election office, who of course has to speak with one voice, how do you make sure you've covered those journeys? Uh, and for an advocacy group who's maybe focused on a specific community, um, what are the things they might need to pull out for their community? And one of the things you mentioned was around personas. And I'm really interested to hear your perspective on how personas can be developed and used mm. correctly when it comes to understanding users better and also how that, that goes on to, to inform how you speak to, to your users? So personas are really just a, they're a piece of, uh, they're, 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 an, they're an analysis that's instead of being facts and figures are turned into a set of stories. Uh, in, instead of making it all about 
numbers and analytics. It's really a, a sort of hanger for the stories, right? So in, when I worked at National Cancer Institute, we were doing a set of personas and we used two dimensions to think about them uh, as, as a primary dimension. One was, where do you fit into the cancer journey? Are you someone who's just trying to learn about it? Or are you someone who's survived cancer? Or maybe you're the, the relative of someone who did not survive cancer. Or maybe you're in the middle of making treatment decisions. And there's a pretty well, there's a pretty robust idea about, about that. And the second dimension was, how strong are your information gathering skills? Because we met a lot of people in our research there who were the person in their family who went to the web or went to the doctor and was the person who dug up the information. So it was like, how close are you to it? Where are you in the perspective and how skilled are you? Uh, and those cut across um, a lot of demographics, but I'll tell you a demographic story. So as we presented the work to the communications team at NCI, one of the things besides starting for our own research, we read two years worth of research reports. I mean, it was a pretty big stack of paper and extracted from that any detail, any smidgen of any information we could get about how people interact with information about cancer and specifically on the web. We were, we were thinking web, so we were not thinking low literacy at that point particularly, um, and we were not thinking about all of the in-person interactions. And uh, we had one of our personas was actually a pair. It was a husband and wife pair. Uh, they were Hispanic. And one of the Cancer de Cavan Espanol team stood up and said, why did you do that? And I said, I read your research. And she looked at me. She said, yes, because this is very common that, we, that, that, that you know, a family will work together to find information. And I said, yes, we, we saw that. We've actually seen that in our own research. And we wanted to make sure that was represented in the personas because it's an important thing to think about. You get things uh, like the caregiver and the patient are often a unit together, right? Uh, and uh, I, I know that she had come ready to say, you're not thinking about my community and you don't know, who, you know some important things about us. And we were then able to open up a conversation about what had we missed, what details needed to be included. And so we were then reaching out to the, the experts either or developing expertise. Um, and we also, besides patients, we had medical professionals. So one of the personas was researchers, right? People who were cancer researchers. And we had a person who represented that. And a, a year later, the person who wrote the section of the web for researchers came to us and said, you know, it's great that you have a researcher, but you haven't even come close to the richness and depth of the, of the, of the, of the type of people I deal with from, from, you know, brand new postdocs to mature, long-time, uh, you know, cancer, people have discovered important things about cancer. And we said, yes, we know, how are we going to do that? And that led to a whole new project. And we expanded out the, the researcher persona into six personas um, to really help her think about the different audiences and how to address them. Um, so I think they're a process, they're a communication tool. And so I think, I mean, that to me was one of the best examples of using it successfully in a, in a domain where they had, they knew so much about their audience. What they didn't know was how to take everything they knew and make use of it and make decisions about web, you know, and about how they were going to write um, effectively. And the, the personas became a way of talking about what, what we knew and what we didn't know. And when someone said, well, I'm thinking about a, 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 a new researcher who's just getting their first, their first grant on their own. Um, we could think, well, what's different about that than someone who's in the end of their first five-year grant or someone who's had a whole career of grants and is now just looking for the next one. I mean, what are the differences in the information they need to know 
And how do we not, how do we create an information architecture so that uh, maybe the long-term researcher knows what's new, but doesn't have to read all the beginning things, but the, but the new researchers get that, not just the information, but the helping can to successfully. I mean, they were taught science, right? Now we're gonna teach them grant writing. Yeah, and, then, and I guess on the other side, on the user side, an example you gave there, uh, you've got issues, yes, with potential varying degrees of literacy, yes, mm-hmm. but then also health literacy mm-hmm. and other challenges that may present themselves, cultural challenges, etc. So what advice would you give to a writer in terms of really being able to use personas in the right way to address the different groups? So one of the things that personas do is help you localize tidbits. I'm just going to say just a non-technical word, you know, bits of information. So how do you, without pandering, right, without, without talking down to someone, how do you include pieces of their voice, right? How do you help that? That might be visual. It's easier to explain with a visual uh, example. Uh, we tested a lot of um, images for the, for the homepage hero image of cancer.gov in Espanol in Spanish. And... Uh, the one they ended up with was uh, uh, an older man dancing with a younger woman in a white gown, right? And the message was that cancer is not a death sentence and that you will grow up, you will be there to see your daughter grow up, right? And it was very carefully tested. We knew that there's a myth in the community about cancer being a death sentence. We knew that um, there's cultural markers about quinceañerias and weddings that are, that, where we can say something about speaking to that community. Um, and so on. We also uh, learned across many communities the importance of being clear who was speaking. So if we were presenting uh, a, a physician's view of things, we would have a picture of a physician, right? Uh, someone that said, this is coming from a medical professional. It turned out that that was just enough of a cue. And so learning through testing, through carefully testing your work, when is enough? When is it enough words? When is it too many words? Uh, what words might people not understand? Because the personas are just the starting point. They're just what you know already. Right? You then have to take the things you actually write and test them against with the audience to make sure that the message that you think you're baking into that body of work is what's coming through. Whitney, this is all great stuff. And just before I let you go, I'd like to fire some, some quick fire questions your way. Okay. okay. And uh, let's see how we get on. So your most overused word or phrase? I hate to say this, but I think it's empathy. Um, because I think it sort of lets us off the hook a little bit, because I know empathy is really about deep understanding all of these things. And, and if, you're, if you're already there, then it, maybe it's a good shorthand word. But I don't think that it, uh, it, it's also a way to get away from saying, well, I, you know, I empathize with them. We don't want you to, just, to feel good about them or feel sorry for them or feel that you think you know them. We want you to know them enough to be able to design and write for them. And that's very, that's deep empathy. Um, I know that lots of people have b- battled about this word. So it's just, it's just one that makes me a little nervous. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those that, that can be uh, used in different ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And your most wonderful word to you? Democracy. Why are you going with democracy? Well, look, uh, the slogan, of, the motto of, of Center for Civic Design is that democracy is a design problem. And what we mean is not that it should be pretty, but that figuring out the service. I mean, election is a giant service design problem, right? It's a giant uh, information design problem. It's a giant uh, interaction design problem. And um, 
it's not the only lens to look at our work through, to look at elections through, but uh, when we think about democracy, we get to think about things like diversity and equity inclusion. We get to think about who, who's, whose voice is being reflected, whose voice is being heard. Uh, and all of that is really, uh, I think, at its bottom, why I got into UX in the first place was, was to be able to uh, make things that help people do do things, learn things, know things in a way they couldn't before. There's also a democratic approach to use of language, right? Look, the starting in the UK with the government digital service and spreading around the world, I think we've really began to think began to think very differently about government tech or you know the technology and the and the communication of government. And one of the slogans you hear is "work with and not for," and I love that. I mean, it's one of my favorite phrases these days. It also harks back to the beginning of, of human-centered design. Human-centered design did not mean do a couple of usability tests with your users. It meant deeply involve them in your work throughout the process. Great. Uh, your book recommendation, please. Oh, gosh. Um, I actually have been reading more non-book things on the, on the web these days, but long form. And so I'm going to give anybody that wants to have a good view of what's going on in the U.S. right now, um, I recommend Heather Cox Richardson's Letters from an American. She's a historian uh, and writes in a sort of dispassionate, but very, mm, it's, it's a non-political voice, but it's a clear placing in historical context of what's happening today. And I find that very calming in my life right now. And I need more calm. Um, but in terms of books, Peter Block is, the, is a, a researcher. He, ha- he wrote a great book on consulting called Flawless Consulting. And his book on community is really about sort of what are the mechanisms by which people become and maintain a community. And I'm kind of fascinated by it. Whitney Quisenberry, it's been an absolute pleasure and delight to speak to you. And uh, I thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you.